that. James chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Let me open up in prayer. Lord, we need your help to be able to receive your word. Not one person here has the power within themselves of their own accord to grasp the mysteries of God. Lord, they must be revealed by the Spirit of God to the children of God. It's called special revelation, Lord, and you know that we need your help because our ears are naturally filled with wax. So, Lord, we need your help this morning. We pray that we would examine our hearts. Lord, my prayer is that even in this corrective sermon from James, Lord, we would be encouraged to be the people of God that love and show mercy. So help us with that, Lord. Accomplish what it is you want to accomplish. And in Jesus' name, amen. A Chicago bank once asked for a letter of recommendation on a young Bostonian being considered for employment. The Boston Investment House could not say enough about the young man. His father, they wrote, was a Cabot. His mother was a Lowell. Further back was a happy blend of salt and stalls, Peabody's, and other of Boston's finest families. And his recommendation was given without hesitation. Several days later, the Chicago bank sent a note saying the information supplied was altogether inadequate. The note read this from the bank. We are not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, just for work. Favoritism hurts. If you've been on the receiving end of favoritism and partiality, you know that it could destroy people. Amen? And whether it happens in our own families or in our schools, in our work, or in our church, it hurts. See, favoritism kills community, and it's why James devotes a significant portion of his letter to deal with it. Let me ask you a few questions. And these are thought-provoking questions. I'm always telling you to interact with these questions. Don't sit there statically listening to me preach. Dynamically interact in your mind, interact with God, and ask honestly, is this me? Do you view those with money any differently than you view those without? Now interact with that. Be honest with yourself. God knows every thought in your heart. He knows every motive anyways. You might as well just come clean and be honest with him. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. How about those who have college degrees? Do you view those differently than those who've never even made it out of high school? How about people who have movie star looks versus just plain looking people? Or those whose clothes are always fashionable versus yesteryear's style? Do you view those from the Middle East when you go into a store and you try to talk to them and their accents? Do you view them differently than you do those from America? Be honest. Do you view women differently than men in terms of their worth? See, the aim of this sermon is to get you and I to see how we view people, 
how we think about people, how we react when we meet people, and how those perspectives alter what James has been talking about in the end of chapter 1, our worship or our religion. Friends, one of the most difficult truths to master is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. See, just prior to this, in the end of chapter 1, James had been encouraging us to put our faith into action, and now he gives us an example of how to do that in the life of this young church. This church, by the way, was a little younger than the age of our church. We're not much further ahead by the age of how long we've been in existence. So James quite simply commands the church, don't show favoritism. Let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 2. If you do not have your Bibles, there's one right in the back of that pew in front of you. Here's what he says. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. You see, this command is not burdensome. This is a command. But it's glorious because James now sets on showing us lots of different angles of this command. We play Boggle once in a while in our family. Boggle is this game that has a bunch of cubes uh, with letters on them. And you flatten the cubes and then you've got to make words out of them. And you have only until the salt shaker runs out to do it. What we do in the middle of the game is we rotate the dish because at a different angle you can see different words. See, James does this. He shows us one part, one aspect, one angle of this command, and then he rotates it for three more times. So let's look at them. Number one, the command is reflective. The command is reflective. Now, Pastor Tim, what are you talking about? Look at it again. Verse one, my brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. You see, the theological, and you got to get this. Don't let this big word throw you off. The theological, the theology just means the study of God. So the theological underpinning of every command in Scripture. Now listen, there are no exceptions. Every command in Scripture, the underpinning, the foundation of it is literally the person and character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the underpinning of every command. So every command that God gives reflects his own character. These commands are windows into the heart of God, revealing what he loves and hates. People wonder what, how I do counseling. I'm really not a very sophisticated counselor. Some of you probably know that. You've been in my office. All I do is sit there and listen and look for windows down into your heart. And when I can see a window down in your heart, I prayerfully, mercifully try to go down there with truth, down the what I call the rabbit hole, down to the root. This is, commands are these rabbit holes that go down to the character of God. See, James is about to crack the whip here. This is a military imperative command, don't show favoritism. He's about to crack the whip. But before he does that, he wants to help them understand that the reason, friends, that I'm cracking the whip here is because this is the lifeblood, the character of God himself. So he roots his command in Jesus. It's reflective of who Jesus is. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. You know what that really literally is translated in the Greek? Listen, it's this. 
our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. That's really what it means in the Greek. See, this is the motivational power behind why you and I cannot, must not, should not ever show favoritism. The one in whom we believe, look at the verse, is Lord. What's Lord mean? Kyrios in the Greek. It's the master and owner of all there is. So here's the Lord, the owner of all there is. And he's also the one in, who, the one in whom we believe is Jesus, the owner of all who is, um, is the Yahweh who saves. It's the God who is our Savior. That's what the word Jesus means. Thirdly, the one in whom we believe is Christ. It's just a term. Jesus Christ wasn't Tim Ackley. Christ wasn't his last name. Christ was his title. Christ means the anointed one. It's what we call the Messiah. So Christ wasn't his last name. It was a title given to him, and it means the anointed one of God. And so finally, our Lord, owner of all there is, Jesus, the Yahweh who saves, the God who saves, the Christ, the one anointed by the Father to be able to be our Messiah, is the one of glory. You know what that word glory means? I want you to never forget this because it brings out, I think, the robustness of that word. Here's what it means. Write it down if you can. Glory means the full presentation of God's presence and majesty. Lord, we want to bring you glory. You know what that means? It means that we want to bring you all of who you are reflected through our gifts and our offerings. So Jesus is the glorious God. It's in Jesus Christ that God is revealed. This glorious, saving God, Jesus, made himself, listen, poor, so that you and I could become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Friends, it's the great exchange of the gospel. Here's the one who is the master of all, the glory of God, the full presentation of who God is, the anointed one, the savior. He made himself poor by being born into a body like ours, God being born into flesh, living in a poor family, in a poor quadrant of the universe. As a Jew, nonetheless, loathed and despised by civilized races. To die on the cursed cross, the worst way to die in that time. So the richness of God made poor so that you and I could be made rich. It's the great exchange. Why not favoritism? Because it's embedded in Christ. That there is no respecter of persons in Jesus. See, it's this example of Jesus that motivates you and I to do away with favoritism and partiality. When we think of the act, by the way, this is not true. I was uh, challenged with this this past week, and I agree with it. When we think of the attributes of God, you know, the character qualities of God, we usually think of what? We sang it this morning, his holiness or his wisdom or his omnipotence or a few others. But an attribute of God that is thought of or spoken rarely is the attribute of impartiality. Friends, that's an attribute of God, just like his omnipotence, all power or all, all knowledge, omniscience, 
All of those are attributes, but so is impartiality. It is the sustainable part of God. It's who he is at all times. An attribute of God is who he is at all times and who he cannot but be. And this is one of them. He's impartial. Elihu, the friend of Job, proclaimed this particular character of God. He says, who shows God, who shows no partiality in princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Peter himself extolled the impartial love of God. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. The Apostle Paul said, for God does not show favoritism. Even God, even the enemies of Jesus said this. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men. Listen, because you pay no attention to who they are. There is no favoritism in God. There is no partiality in God. His impartiality is who he is at all times. You know how his enemies knew this? Because Jesus ministered in Samaria and Galilee, which were throwaway regions. None of the teachers of the law, none of the Pharisees wanted to be in those regions, ministering to those people. So this is the knowledge, this is the bedrock foundation for why James is about to tell us, don't show favoritism because it's the character of God to show no favoritism. Number two, the command. Here's another angle. I'm turning the dish and boggle here. Theologically, the command is a corrective. He says, don't show favoritism. Favoritism is this. Ready? It's the showing of special favor. You look up Webster's and it'll tell you that. But here's what it literally means. It means to receive the face in the Greek. This is what favoritism means in this passage in the original language. It means to receive the face. Or in other words, it means to look at the outward appearance, the external only, and then make a judgment about that person. That's what favoritism means. The tense that James writes here explains that he's forbidding a practice that's already in progress. So listen, let me explain that. What's happening in this young church is that they're already steeped in favoritism. People come into their meetings, into their synagogues, into their worship services, and people are receiving the face. They're looking at people, seeing how they're dressed, seeing how they carry themselves, seeing what wise things they say in the praise and testimony time, and they're determining a judgment. It was rampant. And their worship was not the pure, faultless, worthwhile religion we talked about last week. This is why James is bringing it up now. Their worship was defiled. I want you to listen to this passage from Deuteronomy. If there is a poor man among your brothers, this is God's command to the Israelites. In any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought, quote, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. 
He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. This is a command that God gave to the Israelite community in order to be able to reflect the glory the full presence and the attributes of God. Proverbs 28, 21 says to show partiality is not good. Yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. It is not right, friends. When you and I look at the face. Look at the externals of a person, the house that they live in, the clothes that they wear, the jobs that they do. The size of their bank account. It's not right to look at them and make a judgment whether they're poor or rich. Because while God looks on the heart, those showing favoritism look on the outside. It is the exact opposite of the gospel. And friends, listen, favoritism renders a church ineffective. For that reason... Because it renders a church ineffective, James now turns the dish for the second angle, third angle. The command is illustrated. See, James is a master teacher. And great teachers have the ability to illustrate truths so that you and I can understand them. So he vividly depicts a story of two men who visit one of their church meetings. Here's what he says. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. See, he's illustrating this. We're going to finish that in a minute. But to better understand this illustration, I need to teach you that the vast majority of the early converts in Christianity, listen, were Jewish and poor. You want to know what the church looked like at the time of James writing? Almost the majority of it were they were Jews converted out of Judaism into Christianity and they were poor. So James is writing to this group. Because he knows that for Jews to become a believer in Jesus, that meant they were ostracized, put out by their family and friends and society. You see, there was an intense hatred of fellow Jews toward these converts. But it wasn't just the Jews who hated the early church. Listen to this. In A.D. 178, the Roman philosopher Celsus wrote a severe attack against Christians, largely and simply because... Most of them were poor and uneducated. Here's a part of what he wrote. I quote, These Christians are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests. So flattering. Or frogs holding a symposium amid a swamp. Or worms in a convention in a corner of mud. This was A.D. 178. This is the way the world viewed the church. 
So James has two different men coming into this synagogue meeting or this worship service. The first man's wearing a gold ring. That term in the Greek literally means gold fingered. He's gold fingered. Wealthy people of that day, whether they were Jews or Greeks, there were wealthy Jews, whether they were Jews or Greeks, commonly wore several rings on their fingers as a sign of financial wealth and status. In fact, in early Rome, there were shops in the cities where you could rent these rings when you went to festive occasions to give across the illusion that you're wealthy and important. The Roman philosopher... One Roman philosopher wrote, we adorn our ring, our fingers with rings. A gem is fitted to every joint. They would literally have rings on every joints of their fingers. This is the type of man who comes into this synagogue meeting. In fact, one early church father commanded the Christians, commanded the church to wear no more than one ring on their fingers because they were following and falling into their society and their culture. This gold-fingered man also wore, the, the, the text says, fine clothes. Here's an interesting phrase. It means brilliant. And the same word, the same phrase was used in Acts 10.30 to describe the appearance of angels. So here comes this man into the synagogue meeting wearing rings on every joints of his finger, wearing fine, brilliantly colored clothes. And the door is barely closed when it cracks open again and all the eyes turn to see who's coming in. And instead of glittering fingers and brilliant clothes, this second person is shabbily dressed. The word shabby means dirty or filthy clothes. The man may have come from work and his clothing stained with his labor. See, what little is known about ancient clothing suggests that only the wealthy wore clothes that were not homemade. And they would have walked into this meeting and friends, there's only a few seats they met in homes by and large. And there were only a few seats that would have been available and most likely the meeting was in this home and a few benches were in the front and a few seats around the walls, and the front seats, those benches, those closest to where the scrolls would have been read, were for the more prominent and the more wealthier people, and this man would have been escorted to either the back wall, or you're going to see in a minute where he was escorted. Matthew 23, 6 says, They, who are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. You see, there's important seats. By the way, the important seats are down here, if anybody was wondering. (laughs) There were important seats, and then they kind of went back in less and less of priority or prominence. So immediately, this wealthy man was taken and ushered down to the good seats because he's wearing glittering ringed fingers and brilliantly resplendent clothes. And because they were looking at the face and the external and making a judgment that this man is worthy, this man is godly, this man is righteous. So bring him to the front closest to the scrolls. And the cheap seats were for the second man. And how ironic that this usher was not even willing to give up the chair for his feet, but rather sit by my footstool on the ground. You can't get lower 
and more humiliating than this. Do you see what James is doing? James is using an illustration that was occurring all throughout this young church. Now, you might be saying, well, you know what? We really don't do that. We don't have prominent pews here. We don't have ushers that, uh, you know, bring the glittering, brilliant people down to the front and the rest get the cheap seats in the back. We don't do that here. So I guess we're really exempt. This is a great story, though. Friends, let me ask you something. What if this church was filled with 30% homeless people? Like a church in New Orleans that I met. Who when Katrina came through, the homeless people begged the church to not leave like the rest of the churches. So they didn't. They said, the pastor told me, you can come to our church and you'll never know if you're going to sit next to a homeless person or a man who's a corporate executive of a multi-million dollar company. What about that? What if our church had a bunch of uh, people who are struggling with homosexuality sitting next to you? What if they came in and they mentioned it to you or they acted differently? How would you judge them? You see, favoritism occurs constantly. You and I are constantly and consistently seeing the externals of people and making judgments of them. So this is just as relevant to you and I as it was this young church who were blatant in theirs while we are more insipid with ours. James takes that dish and he moves it one more time. He wants one more angle at this command. He says the command is revealing. Look at verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, this is a rhetorical question. James knows the answer. And he gives an inside look at what is happening when we show favoritism. Number one, we're being divisive, friends. When you and I are, when we show favoritism and partiality, number one, you are being divisive. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? That word discriminate means to separate thoroughly by preferring one person over another. So when you show favoritism, it's literally what's happening is you're dividing the community of God, the redemptive community. That's why it kills redemptive community. Favoritism does. You're dividing the community and you're preferring one person over another or some people over others. This is what discrimination means. To James, he says you're being divisive. It's the same word, by the way, discriminate. In chapter 1, verse 6, the word doubter. Discriminate and doubting are the same Greek words. There in chapter 1, doubting didn't mean a faltering or a weak faith. Rather, it meant a mind divided between centering centering yourself on the world and centering yourself on God. A doubter is a person that vacillates. I'm important. No, God's important. I want to run after my desires. No, I want to run after God's desires. That's what doubting means. Here, it means that you're running after one person because your faith is weak. You're running after one person more than another. You're divided in your love. And a divided church is a hurting church. Friends, disunity is one of the most painful and grievous experiences in the church. It's probably one of the most painful things that I have ever experienced as a pastor. 
right up there with uh, a couple divorcing. These churches were forfeiting their redemptive power because people were being praised. People were being loved with distinction and their unity was being torn apart. It was dividing the flock. So why aren't we, why are we commanded to not show favoritism? Because when we do, the results are disastrous to the community of the redeemed. Secondly, James says that when we are showing favoritism, we are judging others. Look what he says in that text, verse 4, and become judges. You see, what goes through your mind when you see someone overweight? Think about that. How about when you see somebody unbelievably skinny? They're an anorexic. They have an eating problem. They're overweight. They have no discipline. How about somebody who owns a large home? You know, you're invited over to a home in our church and they've got a large home. How about a small home, a very small home? What do you think when you see it for the first time? Or how about that parent whose little child is acting up during the service? Or whose child behaves like an angel? You see how we see the externals. We don't know what's going on. We see the externals and we make a judgment based on that. That's what favoritism is. It's judging other people. The examples could go on endlessly. James finally says we are hurting others when we show favoritism. He says with evil thoughts. Let me read to you an excerpt from Joel Engel. He's a writer for the New York Times. Would you listen to this? He writes, considering the large crowd inside this bus, the lack of voices startled me. Only a rustle of newspapers and the groaning diesel engine broke the silence. Several well-dressed men stood in the aisle, so I assumed all seats were taken. But as I moved to the rear, I spotted uh, an empty aisle seat on a double bench and wondered to myself, why was this unoccupied? The young man next to the window was breathing heavily. His face was covered with what appeared to be fibroid tumors. His long, filthy, matted hair and tattered clothing also made him unappealing. He was obviously homeless, and it was easy to guess why. He sat with shoulders hunched and eyes fixed through the window. Nearly paralyzed by pity, I gave silent thanks that my young daughter wasn't with me, asking her inevitable questions about him in a none-too-discreet voice. But it was because of her that I finally sat down next to him. You see, the kind of man I wanted my daughter's father to be sits in a bus next to someone whose only crime is extreme ugliness. I can't pretend that I relaxed. My left shoulder and arm scrunched involuntarily. He continued to stare out the window without acknowledging my presence. The bus made one more stop before entering the freeway. Several people boarded. An elderly woman walked toward the rear I waited for, every, for anyone else to offer her a seat, and nobody did, so I stood and I motioned to her the empty seat I just vacated, and suddenly I heard, quote, no, I don't want to sit there next to him. That's excruciating to me. Favoritism and partiality and prejudice kill. They hurt. 
We look at people and we look at the outward, we look at the external and we make a judgment. It's called favoritism. And all the while, we don't have God's vision of how precious this person is in Christ. See, it's bad enough for James that these people were judging one another, but to do so with evil thinking was just downright damaging. See, they hadn't gotten rid of what he just said previously, the moral filth and the evil that was so prevalent. Did you know that James uses three Greek words for the word evil in this letter? The one he uses here in chapter 4, verse 16, is the strongest, meaning um, the most malicious and hurtful of the three words. It means to have hurtful intentions that injure and destroy other people. Friends, that's what partiality is. Favoritism lives because there's a motive to hurt. It hurts people. It destroys people, which is why it's so sinfully evil and why it's so command, why we're so commanded to not let favoritism occur in our church. Friends, I'm hoping you're seeing what James is writing. Do you see how lethal favoritism is to the church? Do you see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? If our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory, could come and live in our flesh and die for us, the ground, friends, is level. But is that ground really level in the thoughts of your heart? What difference would it make to you if on a Sunday morning... You had an unemployed man or woman on one side of you and a corporate executive on the other. Would it make any difference? Let me close with this. What is favoritism? It means to look at the externals with people and make judgments about them that influences the way we interact toward them. And it's something that God never, ever does. He looks at the heart and he demonstrates no partiality. He demonstrates no favoritism. And the power of redemptive community, the power of the church, is demonstrated as you and I move toward people with the heart of God that chooses to love everyone regardless of their externals. Amen? Friends, we need to learn this. And we need to be aware of what's happening in our minds when we see people. And the lethal process of favoritism that is killing community all around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the glory. Thank you that you show no favoritism, God. Thank you that there is love and there is mercy and there is kindness. And there is no respecter of persons, no care about what people, positions they hold at work or houses that they live in or clothes that they wear. Father, thank you for reminding us James is not teaching about the evils of having money. He's teaching about the evils of judging people on the externals. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that are more aware of what's happening in our minds and that we would move toward people with the love of Jesus Christ. Help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.